Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, if you're not sure where that is, just go to the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew, Mark, Mark is the second book of the New Testament. So Mark chapter 12, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them, that is the, the religious leaders, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had taken the parable, or for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather around your word. And we pray now as we look at this passage, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds to understand it and that you would give us hearts to receive it and that Lord by your spirit we would feed upon Christ this morning as we look at his words exalt the name of Jesus here this morning edify and strengthen your children save those who are yet to become your children we pray this in Christ's name amen so several weeks ago, we saw that Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He, he cleansed the temple, declaring judgment upon the nation of Israel for their unbelief, particularly the religious leaders. And at the end of chapter 11, which we also looked at several weeks ago, we see the religious leaders question Jesus's authority. They have this dialogue about where his authority is comes from and here in chapter 12 we actually see that the conversation didn't actually end in chapter 11 the beginning of chapter 12 is a continuing of the conversation that Jesus had with the religious leaders in fact almost all of chapter 12 is several confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders over different topics different theological issues and their goal, of course, 
is to try to trap Jesus in his words so that they can condemn him. And so Jesus has just finished conversing with the religious leaders about his authority and also the authority of John the Baptist, which they, of course, rejected just as they rejected Jesus' authority. And so Jesus, in, in light of the previous dialogue at the end of chapter 11, he now decides to speak to them in a parable. And this parable that we're looking at this morning, this story that Jesus tells, is extremely offensive to the religious leaders. Because through this parable, Jesus identifies the religious leaders with the wickedness and unbelief of their forefathers. You see, this parable, in a sense, is a very brief summary of the history of Israel and their response to God, and he ties the religious leaders to that history. Now, as you'll see, there are several characters within this story that represent different individuals or people. So, for example, in verse 1, we're told that a man plants a vineyard. Now, that man, of course, represents God the Father. Not only that, we're told that there are tenants, and these tenants represent the religious leaders. On top of that, we read that there are these servants of the man, servants of God. Now, these are, of course, the prophets that God sent to the people of Israel. And then finally, you have the beloved son of the man, who, of course, represents Jesus himself. Now, these are the characters in the story. And through this story, Jesus is going to convey specific truths to the religious leaders about them, but also about God and himself. Now, there are four truths that I want us to see this morning that comes out of this parable. And the first is this. In verse 1, we see the care and dedication of God towards the people of Israel. We see the care and dedication of God towards the people of Israel. We see this in the very beginning of the parable in verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So this man, representing God, plants a vineyard. Now, what does this vineyard represent? Well, throughout the scriptures, the vineyard is used to describe the people of Israel and Mount Zion. God has planted Israel. He's redeemed and established Israel as his covenant people through the exodus and then bringing them into the promised land. So, for example, Psalm 80, verses 8 to 9, this is what we read about God. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You planted this vine. You cleared the ground for it to, and took deep root and it filled the land. So Psalm 80 is describing how God took Israel, this vine, and he planted it in the promised land. He delivered them out of Egypt and then brought them to the promised land and planted them and they filled the land. They bore fruit. Isaiah 5, 1-2, we read this, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared, of it, cleared it of stones 
and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So God plants Israel, and you see his care and dedication to the vineyard. Not only does he deliver them from Egypt, but he establishes them as a people and nation and cares for them and protects them. You see this in the description of verse 1. He put a fence around the vineyard. He dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now this was a very common practice in Israel. The religious leaders would have completely understood that, that the owner would lease it to the tenants. They were responsible for caring for the vineyard. They didn't own the vineyard, but they were responsible for caring for it. God entrusted the care of his vineyard to these higher tenants, which of course represent the religious leaders. They've been entrusted with the responsibility of caring for God's people. But just in this small description, you see the care and dedication that God has for his vineyard. He desires for the vineyard to grow and bear fruit. He desires to protect it. He cares for his redeemed people. He's dedicated to his redeemed people. So we see the care and dedication of God. Secondly, we see the mercy of God. And we see this specifically in verses 2 to 8. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So when the season came, that is the harvest, the man, that is God, he sends a servant over and over again to the tenants to get some of the fruit. These servants, of course, represent the prophets that God sent to the people of Israel. Now, Jesus here is, is briefly retelling a certain part of Israel's history, specifically the wickedness and unbelief of the people of Israel, primarily the leaders of Israel. You see, though there was always a remnant in Israel that remained faithful to God, and though there were always some kings who were faithful to God, the great majority acted in wickedness and unbelief and persecuted the prophets that God sent to them over and over again. And so here we see the man over and over again sending servants to the tenants. And what do the tenants do to these servants that are sent? Well, verse 3 tells us they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4 says they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And verse 5, we're told they even killed the servant. And at the end of verse 5, we're given a summary statement. Some they beat and some they kill. But notice the progression. It goes from bad to worse. Beating, beating and then shaming and then even murder itself. Now what's Jesus doing by recounting what the tenants are doing to the man's servants? Well, what he's doing is this. He's identifying the current religious leaders with the wickedness and unbelief of their forefathers. 
Now you have to imagine how offensive this was. Within Israel, the religious leaders would have fundamentally been viewed as the God-fearers, the ones who were most concerned about holiness. Yet Jesus, through his parable, is identifying them with their wicked forefathers. They're no different than those who killed the prophets. But Jesus doesn't even stop there. He, he ups the ante, so to speak. You see, in verse 6, through the parable, he actually begins to speak prophetically. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect or revere my son. So after God sends servant after servant and the tenants continue to persecute and kill them, the owner of the vineyard goes to another level. He decides to send them his very own beloved son, his heir, the one who is to receive the vineyard and all the fruit of the vineyard. He believes they will respect, they will revere his son. You see, from verses 2 to 6, Jesus is articulating the incredible mercy of God. After the tenants beat the first servant, the owner of the vineyard could have come and rightfully punished the tenants for their arrogant, wicked behavior. But he doesn't. Instead, he sends another servant, and then another, and then another servant on top of that. He continues to show these tenants mercy by sending them servant after servant, and they continue to abuse his mercy. And so finally, in his abundant mercy, he decides to send his very own beloved son. You see, this is a continual outpouring of mercy on the part of the father despite their wicked behavior he mercifully continues to send them servants and even his own son hoping that they might respond rightly but how do the tenants respond to the son well verse 7 but those tenants said to one another this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They conspire to kill the son because they know he's the heir. They want the inheritance. And we know that just several days later, they did in fact conspire against Jesus. They had him arrested, flogged, and crucified. You see, what Jesus prophesies here in this parable comes true only a few days later. Now, I want you to notice what's driving the tenants' actions. It's covetousness and jealousy. They want the inheritance that rightly belongs to the Son. And you see this throughout the Gospel of Mark with the religious leaders' jealousy towards Jesus. Because of Jesus, their leadership and their influence over the people of Israel was waning. The people were abandoning them to follow after Jesus. And their jealousy drove them to such madness that they conspired and murdered the Messiah, the Son of God. 
As you see in verse 8, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now that's important imagery. Because the vineyard, which represents the people of Israel, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, Jesus was taken outside of Jerusalem, outside the vineyard, and was murdered on a cross at Golgotha, the place of the skull. You see, the religious leaders didn't want to lose their status and their influence over the people of Israel. They were clinging to power and self-exaltation, and they saw Jesus as a threat to this reality. John the Baptist, on the other hand, was the very opposite of the religious leaders. John didn't see Jesus as a threat to his influence and status. John was the one who declared, he must increase, I must decrease. And that's really the difference between those who follow Jesus and those who reject Jesus. Those who reject Jesus see him as a threat to their influence, their status, their, their accomplishments, and the, the power that they have in the eyes of the world, their own self-exaltation, their own reputation. But those who follow Christ, those who give their lives to Jesus, they find Him so worthy that their status, their influence, their accomplishments to the eyes of the world really aren't all that important anymore. So despite the wickedness of the tenants, the owner of the vineyard mercifully continues to send servants and even his own beloved son, hoping, hoping that they might respect his beloved son. But they don't. And instead they take the son and they kill him, thinking that by doing so they will receive the inheritance. They abuse the mercy of the owner. They abuse the mercy of the owner. Of God. So what does the owner do next? Well, the owner's mercy runs out, and he decides to bring judgment. And that leads to my third point. We've seen the care and dedication of God, and also the mercy of God, but now, in this parable, we see the judgment of God. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Over and over again, he, send, he sent to the tenants servants, and they beat and even killed him. He even sends his own son, and they kill him. And it's at this point, the owner has removed his mercy and has brought his righteous judgment upon the tenants. And we're told here that he will do two things. One, he will destroy the tenants, which is fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And then secondly, he will give the vineyard to others. Now, most likely that is a reference to the 12 apostles. The vineyard Israel is given to the 12 apostles, but it's also probably a reference to Gentile leadership because later on, the church, the people of God, the vineyard is ultimately overseen by Gentile leadership. It's taken away from the Israelites and given to Gentiles. But here's what we need to see here. The well of God's mercy toward unrepentant, hardened sinners 
will at some point run dry. Let me say that again. The well of God's mercy toward unrepentant, hardened sinners will at some point run dry. The water of God's mercy will at some point run out. See, if like the tenants in the parable, you continue to reject the Son, God's mercy in time will run out toward you, and as the story says, you will be destroyed. See, there are two other times in the Gospel of Mark where the language, beloved Son, is used. The other time is Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. And both of those events are alluding to Psalm chapter 2, when in the midst of insurrection and rebellion, God the Father affirms his Son and his inheritance, which is what this parable is all about. And just as the tenants are destroyed for rejecting the Son, so in Psalm 2, those who stand in opposition to God and his Son will also be destroyed. This is why at the end of Psalm 2, we're told, blessed are those who take refuge in him. That is, blessed are those who take refuge in the Son, who put their trust and their hope in Jesus. You see, the mercy of God will one day run out, and his judgment will come for those who refuse to take refuge in the Son. Now, I want to, this morning, just briefly address the children this morning, specifically elementary and high school. I want to address the younger folk today. Some of you may be thinking that I'm going to wait until I'm older to give my life to Jesus. Following Jesus right now is just way too serious. That's for adults. I'm going to wait. And I just want to say this to you. The longer you wait in embracing Jesus, it's possible the harder your heart will become toward Jesus. The longer you wait in embracing Jesus, the harder your heart will become towards Jesus. And there will come a day where God's mercy will run out. See, you don't understand fully how merciful God has been to you. In that, for the most part, you've grown up in a Christian home. You've had the Bible taught to you from a young age. You might not like it. You might not realize it. But you need to understand that that is God's mercy towards you. You go to a church on a regular basis where you see God's people worshiping and you hear the word of God preach. You might not understand this, but God is being abundantly mercy to you by allowing you to be born in a Christian home where you are where you hear the word of God taught on a regular basis. Not every child grows up in a Christian home and is able to hear the word of God on a regular basis. And if you think, oh, I just, I wish I could live in one of my friends' homes who, who they're not followers of Jesus and, and they're allowed to do whatever they want, I can promise you, you can go live with them and I can promise you within six months, you will realize how thankful you actually are for your parents. See, the only reason why you're in a Christian home where the word of God is believed and that other child isn't 
is because of God's mercy towards you. Why did God place me into a Christian home with, with loving parents and a father who was committed to being a father who faithfully preached God's word? It was God's mercy toward me. So don't abuse or take advantage of God's mercy because at some point his mercy will run out. Don't wait to come to Jesus and live for Jesus and trust in Jesus. God has shown you mercy so that you might come to him and believe upon him and follow him. The amount of adults that I have spoken to over the years who wished, who wished they had Christian parents who taught them God's word from a young age, who wished that they had met Jesus from a young age. Don't hold off. God is being merciful to you now. So we've seen the care of God. We've seen the mercy of God. We've seen the judgment of God. And the fourth and final thing I want us to see is we see the triumph of God, specifically in the victory of the Son. And this we see in verse 10 to 11. I'm going to start in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then he says this, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the parable actually ends in verse 9. And then in verse 10, Jesus speaks to, to the religious leaders directly and candidly. Have you not read this scripture? Now you have to understand how offensive that would have been. The religious leaders were considered experts in the law. And Jesus goes, have you not read this scripture? You see, the tenants and the religious leaders, they think that they've been victorious, that they've been triumphant because they've gotten rid of the son. They've killed him and thrown him out of the vineyard. But what they don't realize is that in their attempt in killing the son, they ultimately served the triumph of the son. Because three days later, the son rose from the dead, victorious over his enemies, sin and death. That's what's going on here in verse 10 to 11. See, in verse 10, we're told the stone. Who's the stone? The stone is Jesus. Who are the builders? It's the tenants, the religious leaders. They rejected the stone. But despite their rejection, the stone has become the cornerstone or the keystone. Now this is, a, this is a beautiful picture. One of the stones gathered for Solomon's temple was rejected in the building of the sanctuary. But that same stone became the keystone of the entrance. So despite their rejection of Jesus, Jesus has become the keystone in the spiritual temple of God's people. You see, Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 118, which I read for us earlier, which is also alluded to in his triumphal entry, which we looked at several weeks ago. Psalm 118 is a messianic song in which the Messiah comes to the temple bringing salvation and deliverance for his people. And he receives the praise and worship that is due him. It's his moment of triumph. 
and the rejection of the religious leaders will not prevent his triumph, not even them crucifying him. He is the resurrected king, and he has become the cornerstone of the new spiritual temple, the covenant people of God. This is precisely what Peter articulates in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8, where Peter says this, as you come to him, that is, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The temple, the physical temple, has been replaced by a spiritual house, the people of God, and Christ is the cornerstone of that house. And he has built us up as a spiritual house so that we would be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, he says in verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, whoever believes in this stone will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is exactly what Jesus says here in Mark 12. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For those who put their trust in the stone, they will not be put to shame. For those who reject the stone, that stone becomes a stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, the most important question for every single one of us is not whether you've been vaccinated or not vaccinated. The most important question for every single one of us is what we decide to do with the stone. How we respond to the cornerstone, Jesus. To believe in the stone, you will not be put to shame. To refuse to believe in the stone, you will be destroyed. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no fence sitting with Jesus. He demands absolute allegiance. And what you do with Jesus, reject or believe, hear this, doesn't remotely affect Jesus. It only affects you. You reject Jesus as Lord? Understand that he's still your Lord whether you acknowledge it or not. Your response to Jesus doesn't change who Jesus is. He is Lord whether you like it or not. Your response to Jesus only has consequences for you. He's still the cornerstone. He's still the savior of the world. World. He's still the risen Lord. He's still the triumphant king of kings. And the only thing that truly matters in life is how you respond to him. Will you believe upon him or will you reject him? How do the religious leaders respond? Well, verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, 
for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They left him and went away. You either go towards Jesus or you leave and walk away from Jesus. Those are the only two options for every single human being. See, there's great irony in this story. There's great irony in this story because in the parable itself, what's the reason for why the tenants kill the son? They want the inheritance, right? The inheritance will be ours. And so they kill the son. But in killing the son, they actually lose the inheritance. But if they truly understood who the son was and embraced the son, they would have in fact received the inheritance of the son because of who the son and the father are. You see, the son delights to share his inheritance with those who embrace him. And the father delights in those who receive his son. So great is the father's love for those who believe upon his son that they, by adoption, become sons and daughters of the heavenly father. You can become a daughter or a son of the living God. All the inheritance that the son receives from the father is also given to all who believe upon the son. And if only the religious leaders had understood this. And instead, in their attempt to gain the inheritance, they rejected the Son and ultimately lost the eternal inheritance that the Son bestows on all who would but receive Him. And so this morning, my simple plea to you is this. Don't reject the Son like the religious leaders, but embrace Him. Believe upon him, and you too will receive his eternal inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that your son, who is the stone, and who was rejected by men, has become the cornerstone in your spiritual temple. And we thank you that he indeed is triumphant over sin, death, chaos, and all of his enemies. He rose from the dead declaring himself Lord. And Lord, we thank you that through your grace and mercy bestowed upon us through your Son, we also are recipients of his inheritance. And I pray that you would help us to live in light of that truth. And Lord, I also pray for any who are here this morning who do not know Jesus. They might know him intellectually. They might have an idea of who he is, but they have not embraced him as Lord and as Savior. They have not treasured him. I pray that by your spirit, this morning would be the day of salvation for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.